I grew up on music that we call Western Swing. Waylon Jennings famously sang those words, but I can actually say the same. My dad's always been a huge fan of Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys, and hits like Roly Poly and the San Antonio Rose were essential for any of our road trip mixtapes. Coming of age in Austin, I saw the fiddler Johnny Gimble fill in on gigs at the Carousel Lounge and remain a dedicated groupie of the Hot Club of Cowtown. So when I set out on this Route 66 journey, for me, a stop at Kane's Ballroom in Tulsa, which might be Western Swing's greatest cathedral, was absolutely non-negotiable. And when I found out that Asleep at the Wheel would be playing there as part of their 50th anniversary tour, you better believe I planned my travels accordingly. I'm Evan Stern, and this is Vanishing Postcards. Before we get started, here's a message from Salim Roshanwala. Hi, I'm Salim Roshanwala, host of a podcast called Far Flung from TED. In each episode, I'll take you to a new place across the globe to get lost in a new vibe and tap into surprising ideas. From tiny suspension bridges in the mountains of Nepal to journalists who've taken the city buses to deliver the news in Caracas. Let's tap into what the world is thinking on Far Flung. Check out Far Flung wherever you listen. Thanks, Salim. And now, let's get back to Tulsa. don't need no more statues, don't need no more affirmations. Uh, all they need is an audience and a band to play with me and enjoy it. And, uh... Ray Benson, the approachable founder and frontman of the band Asleep at the Wheel, has produced over 30 albums, won eight Grammys, performed for presidents and paupers alike, and at age 70, doesn't seem phased by much. He started this group which fans affectionately call The Wheel in 1970, and over half a hundred years later, still on the road. Puffing on a joint from his bus on the day of a play and drive, he tells me so long as his fingers and voice remain in working condition, retirement isn't a word in his vocabulary. At this point, he's in this game for the fun of it. Still, tonight feels special. I'll tell you what. First time I stepped on this stage, was 50 years ago next month. Yeah. 1971, right. the winter of 1971, we were backing up the same guy, Stoney Edwards. And I recall the way it was, uh, how classic it was, the wood floor, and the history is what's really embedded in the walls, you know. The pictures that line it are just, just a classic. It was a magic, magic moment for us. We stood on the stage and, and it was and played a song and it was kind of like, uh, literally to us it felt like, okay, we made it to Carnegie Hall and, and this is it. And uh, it was wonderful. The stage he's speaking of and Grayson again is, of course, Kane's Ballroom. Located on Tulsa's Main Street in a space whose cavernous interior could double as an airplane hangar, architecturally speaking, it has little in common with Andrew Carnegie's Gilded Age venue. But Mr. Benson is by no means the only one who regards this place with deep reverence. The, to me, the Canes is the most revered 
building in the state of Oklahoma. In terms of that sentimental journey type museum aura, Canes is it. It's not the, to me, it's not the Cowboy Hall of Fame in Oklahoma City. It's not the Will Rogers Museum. And I love Will Rogers, by the way. Canes Ballroom is the center, and here's why. My theory is, we're, the whole world, we're all connected to each other by music. And because of that, Canes, Canes is the figurehead. Canes, Canes is the church, so to speak. And I believe in that. But if Canes is a church, hearing stories from a longtime regular who just tells me his name is J.W., I'd wager this is one of the looser congregations I've encountered. They used to be BYOL, and they would be drinking whiskey, they'd all be drunk, and it, it, passing joints up and down the tables. You know, it was a wild time, the 70s. And, and do you have a first memory of Canes? Yeah. Six-point tall boy curs, getting drunk, sitting on the curb outside with my head down in the curb, and real drunk my first time. But it was so much fun. They had tall boy curs in ice, like watermelons in ice can, you know, ice water. Interestingly enough, though, I learned from Larry Schaefer, Kane's white ponytailed, cigar chomping former owner, that it was initially intended as a playground for oil rich Tulsa's high society. Kane, Madison Kane did not build the Canes. Okay, Tate Brady, a local businessman, built the building in 1924. What, the building which would become Kane's Ballroom. Legend is he built it to be a car dealership. The car dealership fell, deal fell through. He opens the building in 1924 as a dance hall called the Louvre, go figure. And, it, and it's operated as the Louvre up until Madison Kane came in and bought it in about 1930. Madison Kane grew up in Long Beach, came out to Oklahoma to set up his to have his dancing uh, company, Kane's Academy of Dance. He makes a deal with Tate Brady to get the Louvre. Comes in 1930, the name changes to Kane's Academy of Dance. So that's how the ballroom was built. Opens as the Louvre, runs its course for several years. Bass and Kane comes in and quickly puts it on the map. And the proper dress, you had to have proper dress. Madison Kane would hire young debonair guys in their tuxes as dance instructors. There was a lot of money here and nowhere to go spend it. So there was, the more upscale debutantes would take dancing lessons. What else are you gonna do? A lot of the streets were just dirt streets. But while Madison Kane gave the place its name, it was Bob Wills who with the help of his Texas Playboys made it famous well beyond Oklahoma and earned the title King of Western Swing. Western Swing is an amalgam of a lot of different kinds of music. It's often, it's often lumped in with country music, but it's not really country music. It's, it's a dance music and it's, it's, a, it's jazz, jazz and dance based. It's, it has, it, it contains elements of, of Texas fiddle music, Texas fiddle music, pop music, south of the border music, uh, blues, rhythm and blues and big band. With with Western Swing, it's still guitar, it's mostly string nature, it's still guitar fiddle. And the Texas people are always sort of PO'd because Bob Wills had to come here to popularize Western Swing, which they tend to call Texas Swing, which is a misnomer. If you heard the last episode, 
you'll recognize that voice as John Woolley, who co-authored the book 20th Century Honky Tonk about Kane's Ballroom. Why Wills and the boys ended up here instead of Fort Worth, Waco, or maybe San Antonio is a long and wild story. Basically, they were chased out of Texas and then even Oklahoma City by teetotaling bandleader and eventual governor and senator, Papio Daniel, whose influence ruled the airwaves with an iron fist. Bob Wills, his business manager, O.W. Mayo, and their announcer and trumpeter, Everett Stover, driving from Oklahoma City to Tulsa. And Mr. Mayo always told me he was the one that said, you know, there's a big station there. This is just a 5,000-watt station we're going to. There's a 25,000-watt station there called KVOO. Why don't we go try that first? Some way or another, they managed to talk their way into going on KVOO at midnight. That was the earliest they could get the rest of the band down. And so that started Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys in Tulsa. After that first program, they received a postcard from a listener who heard them in faraway Berkeley, California. Soon after, they moved their show to a prime noontime spot and in 1935 began broadcasting from Canes, whose large space gave them more room to accommodate their fast-rising popularity. It just blew across about half of America because there was no station in the way. And so people were picking it up all over the country and started hearing this new music and, and getting the ideas in their head of the Canes Ballroom being like the Aragon or something, you know, or some place that like Tommy Dorsey would play. They had all these grandiose ideas of what the Canes was like. And and if you look at where country, I'm sorry, where Western swing music really caught on, which is essentially the Southwest and West, it was the broadcast pattern of KVO. Indeed, the crowds came like never before. And being a working man's entertainer, after seeing Mrs. Kane eject a few tireless men from the dance floor, Will saw to it the dress code was disregarded, forever loosening up the place's spirit. The, the first thing is that they changed it from a dance, a dance lesson, a place where you had dance lessons, a dancing academy, to a, a honky-tonk. And that was, that was the doing of Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys. It was a completely different situation. Just going to take a quick break to say, if you like Vanishing Postcards, you need to know about another one of my favorite podcasts, Gravy. A production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, Gravy tells stories about the changing American South. Reporters dig into lesser-known corners of the region and talk to the folks who grow, cook, and serve our daily meals. Explore the complexities of craft chocolate and mythology of Florida orange juice. Hear stories of Indian sweets in North Carolina and Cuban sandwich controversies. Meet Southerners in all of their definitions, reinventing the region for a more delicious future. Listen to Gravy wherever you get your podcasts. And now, let's head on back to Tulsa. Canes is still known as the home of Bob Wills, and an embroidered tasseled banner bearing this title hangs over the proscenium stage today. But though significant, Bob Wills' residency only represents about a seven-year chapter of Canes' history. And looking up from the maple dance floor... You'll notice the space is watched over by a continuous series of oversized portraits of legends who've performed here. Faces like Ernest Tubb, Patti Page, Glenn Miller, Fats Domino, and Hank Williams, whose presence infamously hangs over a red couch that's still kept in management's office. In October 1952, you know, Hank was in a wobble by then, drug-wise painkillers, I understand, and a terrible drinker. 
O.W. Mayo, Bob Will's manager, was co-owner. He hired Hank Williams to come in. Of course, he would want to and play two shows in October of, of that year. Hank, as I'm, and I, I got this information I got from O.W. Mayo, who hired him that day. I, I, I was good friends with him before he passed away years ago. He hired him. He knew that he, that Hank had a problem with alcohol. He hired Blackie Crawford as the band for him that night. He became so intoxicated that he had to be held up through the first show, okay? And the crowd forgave him for it. It was packed. By the, when the show's over, it's good night, that crowd leaves, they bring in the, net, the late show crowd. Hank was too, Hank was too out of it to even perform. There was, he was not gonna perform. But Blackie Crawford announced that they're gonna play the show anyway, if people would stay, and they're welcome to get refunds on the way out since Hank couldn't be there. But that Hank was in the office there, asleep on the couch. I don't know if you recall seeing that old Naugahyde couch. That's the couch. Hank's second show, Hank spent on that couch, passed out. Well, as I'm told to O.W. Mayo, the crowd was kind of okay with that because he was still there. They were sympathetic to that and the crowd stayed. But somehow someone had opened the door from the ballroom into that office and you could see Hank's line over there. A crowd formed and they passed by and, and take, with respect, they, they got to see their star passed out on the couch. And no, one, and no one asked for a refund. Keynes is rich with stories like these that are in no way limited to the antics of country stars. And much of its survival can be attributed to its willingness to adapt with the times, which is a practice Larry Schaefer deserves credit for helping foster. I was born in 1948. I grew up west of Tulsa, out in a rural area. But there was, there was a lot of storytelling about the Bob Wills days and the old Canes ballroom and how, how much great fun it was. And you could buy bootleg whiskey out the back door and you could dance and grab ass and occasionally there'd be a fist fight breakout. So I, I grew up with that, hearing those stories at a distance. So I, it was in my mind, what, did it mean much to me at that point now? He wouldn't actually visit Keynes until some years later, when he was summoned there to fill in on the steel guitar for a gig with Gene Mooney and the Western Airs. So I loaded up and I go find Keynes. First time I'd ever even really paid attention to it. I go inside the ballroom. This would have been in about June of 1971. I walk in the ballroom, front door's there, holding that guitar case, and as soon as I walked into the ballroom, I, I, I was affected. It's just I got some kind of a, a, a cosmic shock, okay? Like, I knew, I said, I thought to myself, wow, something big has happened here. When you look at those portraits, and, you, and the smell, the smell I smelled that day is, is exactly the smell you smelled when you were there, okay? <laughs> It's in the it's in the wall. The DNA is in the walls, but it affected me as a musician to realize, wow, this place is a hidden hidden treasure. So that was the first time I was in Canes after growing up in the fifties and sixties hearing about it. Five years later, having found a career as a promoter and made some change booking Peter Frampton and Carlos Santana at the Tulsa Fairground Speedway, he went ahead and made a down payment. About late 1975, 
or early 76, I saw an announcement that Kane's Ballroom was going to be up for sale. You know, I gave, very, I gave 60 grand for Kane's and just worried myself to death that I'd paid too much. He'd maintain ownership for nearly a quarter century, during which time he'd form relations with everyone from Eric Clapton to George Jones, Van Halen, and in 1978 booked a ragtag group of kids from London. I paid the, I paid the Sex Pistols $1,000, okay? My tickets were $2.50. The, the tour was so unorganized by Malcolm McLaren, who managed them, brought them over from London, decided to pick Southern Tour and not play Chicago and Detroit and New York City, but he strung them down to the South because he wanted bad things to happen and get more publicity because you know how that works. Bad publicity is the best you can get. I, had, I didn't sell out. I had eight or 900 people there on a cold, snowy night. I had protesters outside of the front door against the evilness. I had so many undercover cops trying to bust these guys for having live sex on stage, which was not even close. They were just a bunch of teenage kids really trying to pretend they're badasses. Yeah, I, they hung in my office all day, in and out over my feet. I had, kept feeding them cases of warm Heineken beer because they wanted to drink their beer. But when they, when they hit, uh, when they went into God Save the Queen, I love these guys. But what it did, what it did, how it affected the musicians and listeners around Tulsa, there was no punk scene until that moment. <coughs> so these young rock, a lot of young rockers became punk rockers the next day after they saw the Sex Pistols. And that really stirred up the punk scene around here, as it did everywhere, probably. As it turned out, the tour only lasted two weeks and would prove to be one of the final gigs before the band's breakup. Frontman Sid Vicious would also die of an overdose about a year later. But he left an imprint that remains at Kane's today in the form of a hole he punched in the wall backstage that current owner Chad Rogers keeps framed in his office mere feet from Hank Williams' memorial couch. All is where Sid Vicious from the Sex Pistols put his fist in 1978. When we bought the Canes, we were told that story, and it used to be backstage, um, backstage behind the stage, and we had it cut out and framed and brought up here because it's such a historic kind of piece of memorabilia. A lot of the bands that come through, they've been told or they hear, have heard about this, so they like to come in the office and see it. When I was made aware of it, I didn't react well. I, if I'd have been back here, I'd have, I would have taken him to the ground and kicked his ass for doing it. But uh, it wasn't, a, the walls that back behind the dressing, dressing room weren't that precious. And the wall, the hole that he knocked was actually in to the girl's restroom. <laughs> It was a common wall, so if you knocked a hole in the damp, the, the, the sheetrock, all of a sudden you get, you're looking into the girls' bathroom. I don't know if he did it out of anger or what. I wasn't back there with him. But I'd have stopped him if I'd have been there. But dealing with explosive rockers is only one of many challenges you'll face in running a music venue. And Larry acknowledges it wasn't all fun and games. I figured I'd, I'd, I was 27 when I got there. But, a lot of it because I was finding myself overwhelmed by it. It took so much hands-on, and I was prone to take the easy way out and a bag of cocaine and too much alcohol, and that became the lifestyle down there. It was catching up to me, and I was at a point where I was feeling like I couldn't escape from canes. And I said, well, you know, here I am. I've been here 25 years, 24 years. 
I don't, I don't want to be here 24 years from now, an old decrepit man who has a heart attack sitting behind this desk. So it was time for me to move on. I always say I was done with Keynes. It was done with me. And um, I was bankrupt. There was no money left. And I just saw it as time to, to leave. And last time I was in there was probably first day of the year 2000. Uh, I came in and I gathered a few of my possessions. And I'd already transferred ownership out with no financial end of it coming my way, by the way. I simply, I simply threw the keys in the street and walked away. And I did exactly that. When I left here that Saturday afternoon, I grabbed this and that, put it in my car, locked the door, and I threw my keys up in the air down Main Street and drove off. Larry struggled to reinvest in the property during his tenure and had a hard time maintaining upkeep, which suffered further following some poor management after his departure. Then, in 2002, a savior came in the form of neurosurgeon Jim Rogers, who bought the property with his son Chad, who oversees its operations today. Um, I never would have ever thought I'd be doing what I'm doing, I guess, is to get to where, like what you asked. Um, but when we were both sitting at home, my mom and dad were at their house, and I was at my house on a Sunday evening in 2002, and it came on the 10 o'clock news that the Canes Ballrooms was for sale. We both happened to see it, and he texted me, and he came down, we came down to look at it that Tuesday, and he bought it that Thursday. And um, the funny thing is, he grew up in Tulsa. He was born here, but he had never been in Kane's Ballroom till that Tuesday before he bought it on that Thursday. But when he walked in, just like my mom and I and brother could feel, we could see through all the dust and the, it, the place was very run down. Um, it was, had not been taken care of. It hadn't really been much in business. I mean, they've been doing things here and there, but it wasn't anything like what it is now and, you know, upkept like, like it, it deserved to be. And, um, you know, we could see through all that. And I think you could see, I remember my dad saying, this is a jewel. It's a, it's, 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 it's a treasure. Like, it'd be horrible if it got into the wrong hands. Like, we should, we should, we should do this. Talk to any regulars about the old days, and at some point they'll inevitably get around to mentioning the bathrooms, which technical director Brad Harris can't help but bring up at this point in our conversation. I mean, no, wait, no air conditioning, you know, or the bathrooms were horrible. It was two troughs and a stool for the men's and three stools and a sink for the women's. and it was, that, that way for like 83 years, man, you know. So what Jets of the dust was thick. The grime was thick. You know, we had to go to like two or three different banks just to get enough money, acquire and, and, and talk these people to see the vision that we had, that we could turn this around and that we could be doing 90 to 100 shows a year plus private parties and put Canes back on the map as the true, you know, Carnegie Hall, quote unquote, of Western Swing, like people call it. And, you know, the home of Bob Wills, time, Tulsa's timeless honky tonk. Those are all slogans that Canes has always had. And I feel like that more than ever right now, we, we make that proud. I mean, we, we represent that, so. Watching a full house of couples glide across the polished dance floor, which is bathed in soft blue and red lights, I agree that Chad has much to be proud of. And though he tells me he grew up listening to more Bon Jovi and Journey than Western Swing, this place's history is clearly not lost on him. 
a couple couple summers ago, I had a, a, an older man and woman that were driving Route 66 from California, and they stopped in and they knocked on the front door and I I, I came to the box office and they said, "Do you mind if we come inside and look around? We 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 we've been here before. We just want to look around again." So I let them inside, and I uh, I turned the mirror ball on, and I ended up walking out there. And they were under the mirror ball dancing. And as they were leaving, I said, well, when were you here in the past? And they said, we met here back in the 40s, 50s. Chad tells me that before renovating the property, he and his father took a trip to my hometown to tour La Zona Rosa, the backyard, and Austin Music Hall for ideas. It's bittersweet to hear him say this, knowing that none of those places remain. But while nothing in life is permanent, and know full well how challenging the last few years have been for live performance. I don't think I see Kane suffering that fate anytime soon. See, I don't think Madison Kane, Larry, or the Rogers family chose this place. I think it chose them. And it's because of their stewardship it remains, and trust it will call others in the future. I am redeemed in some ways, to see what Keynes has become to to the world. It's not just to Tulsa. Keynes is one of those great old places that are still standing, and so many of them are not anymore. It looks like Keynes is gonna keep standing now. Here's Here's one thing I realized about Keynes. All I ever was was a caretaker. All we all, all we are is caretakers for our things. Keynes is going to. Keynes was there after I, the, after I left. Keynes still was there, and it was still Keynes. It's doing fine. And the Rogers family that have done so well by it, they put the money into it. They cleaned it up. It's there to stay. And the people that own it now, and I'm very close to them, the Rogers family, are just caretakers. And I've told that to Jim Rogers. Jim, you're not going to own this place forever. To stop and remind yourself, because. Somebody after you is going to own it, and hopefully somebody after them will go on for perpetuity. So. need to thank for making this episode happen and i'm going to start with the legendary ray benson for generously finding time to speak with me mere minutes before taking the stage few have done more to honor bob wills's legacy more than this man and asleep at the wheel who are still killing it on the road their site is in the show notes and go see them if you can it's an experience you will not forget and for heaven's sake if you're in tulsa do yourself a favor and see what's going on at Kane's. Thanks so much to Chad and Brad for all that they do there, as well as the incredible Larry Schaefer for sharing so much with me. John Woolley was the one who facilitated our meeting, and again recommend his tome, 20th Century Honky Tonk, which is the definitive book of record on this special place. 
Most of all, thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed what you've heard and haven't already, please follow us on your favorite podcast app. It helps us grow, and doing that guarantees you will never miss any content. Also, if you know someone in your life who might enjoy what we're up to, it would mean a great deal if you could just take a second to text them and share this episode. For photos and more, please find us on Instagram or vanishingpostcards.com, where you're always welcome to reach out. Our theme music was written and performed by Max Kraus and Emily Young. I'm Evan Stern, and hope you'll join us next time for more Vanishing Postcards. Postcards.